What's going on, Tim? I just hey, said, how you doing? I got you. What's going on, Tim? <laughs> hey, how you doing? <laughs> Good to see you face to face. Good to see you. Yeah, finally, we get to actually have a conversation without uh, over Twitter. Yeah, man. Where are they? Where are the little ones? They're in the other room. I can bring them in for you real quick. Yeah, please. Do it. Please. That's all right. Yeah, I can go grab them real quick. Okay. Do, do you know their names? His kid? The, no, no. His, uh, <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you know he adopted my, my foster kid? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> do you know his kid's name? <laughs> you don't know? <laughs> <laughs> that was so polite of you. <laughs> yes. So they're oh, like, they're huge. They're huge. They just ate dinner too. So, so Justin doesn't know their names. Actually, tell him he's because he's gonna love them. Okay, so this is Mia. We changed her name, and then this is Jules. Um, oh my god that's from the ewok movie that's awesome <laughs> the ewok movie yes <laughs> yes <laughs> they're huge now yeah uh well they're they're too big now you gotta get new ones i gotta get new ones yeah. <laughs> they're too big for the they pass their expiration date that's why you foster you know as soon as they're boring just get them give them as the soon as they get too big you're just like all right move on yes <laughs> they look no. adorable and also i I, you you want to replay that recording because you'll hear that they whispered in the microphone. Aaron, we missed you. Come. <laughs> That's what they've been whispering the last couple of days. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like wake up in the middle of the night. They're just staring at me. Like send us back. <laughs> That's just a regular cat thing. That's true. Yeah. Hey, let's go be freaky to our owner. <laughs> For real. That's what they're doing. Now they're running around. So but we got them in a routine, which is nice. With uh, Jules, because he likes he is like super rambunctious. So nice. at night he'll be running around, but once he knows like he gets fed, we have that little Christmas sweater for him, and we'll put him on him, and he knocks out. Oh, I love it when animals love the little clothes you put on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he like freaks out when we take it off because he has to groom himself, but he acts like <laughs> he's never groomed himself before. He had nothing else to do that day. He's like, oh, my day's ruined. That's what he's like. Myself now. <laughs> he, he makes like a little noise. He's like, finally, as it's coming off of him. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Love it. But we can, um, we can just jump into the show since the way I run this show is like very loose format. Like I have some question points, but it's more like conversation based um, to make it sound more organic versus scripted. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I thought we were already on. We are. We are already on the show. I'm going to, I can just introduce it now, but I'll keep all that. I'll keep everything in. Cool. Sure. Um, All right, everybody. Welcome back to Lighting Up the Marquee. Got a very special episode today. Very lucky, very fortunate to have the writers, directors, producers, editors, cinematographers for Synchronic, uh, Mr. Aaron Moorhead and Mr. Justin Benson. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This is awesome to have this work out. I know we've been, I was messaging your PR agent since like October or November to get this all worked out. I'm very it- glad. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, I was going to say the one thing to know about when you say the phrase our PR agent. Oh, yeah. yeah we yeah. actually don't yeah. have, we don't have our own PR agent. And that, for, that further complicates your scenario. Uh-huh. It just means that like not only every release, but every stage of a release, we probably have a different person handling. Um, uh, press and all of that. Mm-hmm. So just know that um, <laughs> it would like- have been a lot easier if we actually had a peer person. Yeah. That was ours. <laughs> that was, I know because Aaron sent me 
the info for the first PR agent. And then I think since the initial conversation, I've gone through three people. Oh boy. Yeah. And within the last week, it's, it gets into like the weird intricacies of, of independent film, you know, where mm-hmm. it's like, obviously we can totally say, Hey, 8 PM on Sunday, let's chat. But then the, 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 the person that is arranging the PR for the film during that time will be like, Hey, did you just do like an interview without talking to me? So we just try to, we just try to like keep it all in the family. And then yeah, it bounces down the line. You get it. Anyways. Yeah, this is like the first interview I think I've had for the show where I've had to go through PR agents. Normally, it's just I get my friends on or people that I know or who have like independent films. I'm like, you want to be on an episode? And they're like, yeah, sure. Here's my schedule. Is it? I, I bet it's the first one where you've adopted the kittens of the, of your guest. Yes, because <laughs> I, I have mentioned the story of adopting them from you. Because um, I have mentioned Synchronic and all your other films in prior episodes, even my last episode, I was talking about underrated films or underappreciated films. And I was talking about resolution and pretty much your whole filmography. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Someone says it. Cause uh, my friend Ian was actually the one that introduced me to you guys. Cause he met you guys in Chicago at a screening for the endless. Oh, that was so, that was a fun screening. Yeah. That was amazing. He said, he said he talked to you guys for like 30 minutes after the screening, even like, Everybody had gone by this point. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that showing in, in Chicago was was <laughs> genuinely kind of beautiful. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was an uh, there was an arcade across from the screening. Yeah, and uh, we just started ordering beers and playing video games with people across <laughs> from the screening, and then ended up at like a speakeasy across town at some point. I think I just communicated with Ian, actually. I don't remember exactly what way, but sorry, it's been a bit of a flurry in the last few days. Oh, no, you're all good. Yeah, cause he, he had mentioned The Endless to me, so we checked it out. And then I remember literally right before uh, me and him and his girlfriend Haley all moved out to L.A. for finishing school, we double featured Resolution and Spring because they had seen it, but I had not seen them. And I, it was like 2 a.m. And watching Resolution at 2 a.m. was like one of the most terrifying things i'd ever experienced that's that's really you know what you're you're the third person i've heard or heard or read express say how terrified they were um watching resolution but you saying you watched it at two in the morning even as the filmmakers of that film who genuinely like we were trying to make it terrifying and unsettling and all those things it's like i would still be like hey you might be terrified of it at two in the morning you might just go totally to sleep yeah, mm-hmm. it is a cha- it is a quiet chamber piece, but you have if you if you get you know you get into it and you're like oh it's it hopefully it's it's yeah. very unsettling but but it's also like that's a hard one for two in the morning and I salute you yeah <laughs> but we we've always tried to pair some kind of a stimulant with our with our you know I mean like synchronic is maybe a, some kind of a light psychedelic mm-hmm. uh, bone, bone storm is weed you know or right, no, no I'm sorry no wait. <laughs> Bone storm is bone storm is a forty of Mickey. That's what you need. You know, um, it's, spring is some good Italian wine, right? You know? Right. Resolution is coffee. You just need some coffee, pretty much. <laughs> and yeah. I don't mean that like, oh, you'll be bored to tears. It's just it's a it is the slowest of all burns. So right, that's what I tell people when I say it's like one of the most terrifying films I've seen. People are like, how terrifying is it? And I'm like, I mean, if you really get into it and think about like the themes, it's very terrifying, along with the imagery but it's not like insidious, like your standard mainstream scares. Yeah. But also like on the topic of it being slow burn, which I don't disagree with, I would also call it slow burn. The other weird thing is 
this is some of the second time this has come up in the last few weeks is like, if you're defining slow burn, which I think that term first came to be like coming up a lot in indie genre with um, House of the Devil. And if you're comparing resolution to House of the Devil, they're very different. Um, House of the Devil just has so much negative space, like a girl walking down a hallway. It's brilliant. It's amazing. But mm -hmm. but whereas like resolution, it's like slow burn in the way, but they like never stop talking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so whereas like people like people don't talk like there's a lot of slow burn horror um that's like house of the devil and stuff like it where it's like oh it's truly like long sections of lightness and just people walking and talking and resolution is so little of that mm -hmm. um it's almost like a no this is giving it too much credit i'll say oh it's like <laughs> if you could make a link later movie really scary people never <laughs> stop talking uh yeah uh, I, I think resolution is like oh you find out the reason you call it slow burn is because you find out like what's really going on very late, you know, mm -hmm. but, but plenty happens. Plenty yeah. happens. It's just that there's all, there's this thread that's, that's been, that's been reverberating underneath everything mm -hmm. that you suspect, but you can't put a finger on. Hopefully that ideally we weren't being too obvious with it. And, and that's the intention. And that's what you can do when you're making a $20,000 first feature. Mm -hmm. you, know? you get, you get to just make movies that are just like a wild swing in the dark like that. Right. I mean, resolution. Yeah. You say it was mentioned for or made for 20,000, which still blows my mind. I think about that movie so much and like even rewatching it, I'm still trying to piece together everything, um, even like picking up on every little thing. Well, hang on. Resolution was made with 20,000 of uh, 2011 dollars, which is equal to four point eight million dollars today. So oh. 2011, the market, we were in a very, very different day. Very, very different, different place. Yeah. Well, you guys have gone from making resolution with that budget to recently just announced that you guys are going to be directing moon Knight with Marvel. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even like, just like that. It also, it's weird. Like if you look at like, um, we did an episode of the twilight zone, mm -hmm. Jordan Peele's reboot of it. Uh, and even that was like, actually, to be honest, right now we're working, we're working on a TV show right now too. Um, that hasn't, it hasn't been announced yet, but it's a, you know it's a bigger, bigger, but much bigger budget thing than resolution. But it's funny because it's like being on these things. It's like oh, I don't even like the percentage. Like how many? Like our episode of Twilight Zone. How much would you say? Like how many times the budget the resolution equals the budget of our Twilight Zone? Oh my episode? god! I, well, we don't know the budget. As, as you said, <laughs> we don't know the budget of our Twilight Zone episode, but it's probably a hundred times larger, maybe more. You know, mm -hmm. and. uh and actually also interestingly you know obviously we have some like really interesting fun stuff going on in our lives in terms of the larger budget space right now uh, as just to mention we're working on a tv show right now but two months ago we were quite literally unemployed on unemployment and mm -hmm. and making a two-person feature film like like the in the life of an independent filmmaker has no boundaries whatsoever and no guarantees and by the way all of it is happiness <clears throat> it's all happy i mean there's plenty of heartbreak obviously but it's a dream like there is no complaints here just just saying like there's no path you just right. yeah and it's like you're always in two stages one is oh my god we're unemployed we've been unemployed for a long time we're gonna be unemployed forever we'll never make anything ever again oh my god and then like a week later you're like oh my god we will never be able to finish everything we're working on and um and and I guess we also have to figure a way to not sleep for three years. Yep. And then, and then the next week you get fired from everything. 
Yeah. <laughs> Everything falls You're apart. back at, oh my God, we're unemployed. Yeah, it's we're, like, are we going to be dealing with like a PR crisis <laughs> soon? Because I kind of want one so we can lose a few of these jobs. It's great. That, that's, by the way, a total joke. Like this is everything that's going on is a blessing. Exactly. That's what I was going to ask is uh, with the life of an indie filmmaker, like I've had a couple indie filmmakers on this show um, and they've been going through the same thing this year as like everybody has. Um, even I wouldn't say I'm an indie filmmaker. Like I'm still aspiring because I haven't had a big project. Um, but I know this year has been hard on a lot of people. Um, I wasn't, I don't even know if you're aware, Aaron, we actually moved out of uh, Los Angeles back to Indiana. You might've told me and I've forgotten. I'm so uh-huh. sorry. You're all good. But yeah, we had to move because both of our jobs, uh, myself and my girlfriend, there was no sight of reopening in LA. So we just decided to come back to where I'm from in Indiana and try to make the best of it here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a mess. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously the pandemic is a mess for uh, in the film industry. Let's talk about that. You know, so there's, um, here's where it's, where it's less of a mess, like in very high budget production, uh, the, the, the cost of, of COVID it's always like every dollar is a problem, but the cost of like protecting your crew against COVID is not a percentage of your budget. It can be, you know, I mean, it definitely gets larger, the larger your film gets, but at a certain point, you know, you're talking about how much PPE your testing schedule and all of that. And so, you know, on a $200 million film, your COVID line is maybe $3 million, $4 million or something like that. Mm-hmm. On an independent film, it's half of the budget because, you know, if you're working with $300,000, it's going to cost, well, I, the math won't actually check out, but I would say on a $300,000 budget, it would be $100,000 of COVID stuff. Mm-hmm. And your, your movie doesn't get more valuable and the margins are nonsense in independent films. So you now have a $400,000, $100,000 film that is only worth probably less than $300,000. And so basically that kind of film just died for a little while and it's very sad. And then movie theaters are going through a similar thing. This mm-hmm. process of adaptation is very difficult. I know when, yeah, I was seeing when you guys were promoting Synchronic, you guys both put out a statement that even you both didn't feel comfortable going to the theaters when Synchronic was supposed to be released in theaters. And over here in Indiana, they had it in one theater, I believe, for like a couple show times. Yeah. Um, but even like myself, I wasn't wanting to go see it. Like I wanted to see it in theaters to support it, but it just, yeah, it's not worth the risk. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a, uh, it was a, I mean, we'll always look back on the release of this movie as being like, oh, wow, we went through something that literally, I mean, I don't think anyone's ever been in that situation before. <laughs> it's yeah. like, how do you promote, uh, how do you, you know, deal with anyway, releasing a movie during these circumstances and, um, wild wild to be in that in that and like haven't just now i'm thinking back on it being like oh my god that's insane <laughs> like what do you do yeah it was very complicated i'm right? still processing it because there's there are there are so many different um understandable from every direction pressures everywhere uh and it was one of the strangest moments of our careers you know mm-hmm. uh, and i I mean, it's, we're not quite ready to fully like dive in and talk about it because it's just, it was just bizarre and it's ongoing, you mm-hmm. know, but uh, yeah, I mean, no one has been in that situation before and there's no precedent. You can't look to anything and say, I know what to do. Mm-hmm. You just, you just do what your, your heart tells you, you know, mm-hmm. and hope that that's not betraying. you. Mm-hmm. I know it's like a, they're still trying to figure out what's going on in the industry as far as if theaters are going to open or like with HBO Max releasing them same day yeah. on HBO Max and theaters. 
right. I want to know, I want to know how on earth. So, you know, it's Warner that's releasing everything on Instagram, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. the idea. Right. How did they renegotiate those contracts? There are so, there's a Byzantine labyrinth of contracts about the, the type of release that a film gets before the film even gets shot on a big budget. Mm-hmm. How on earth did they do that? And by the way, I will read the book of the, the, the Warner lawyers that did the renegotiations. <laughs> I'll read that person's book because that person is either Gandalf or a criminal. And it's amazing. Because <laughs> it was their entire um, film slate, right? Or like it was like Dune and Wonder Woman, like all the DC movies. Wow. Um, yeah. All these huge movies. That's crazy. Yeah, it is it is wild. Yeah. And by the way though, let's let's talk about something kind of interesting about that is you know, streaming video is eight years old. You know, 2012 is roughly when everybody started just being like, yeah, when's it coming out on streaming? Netflix didn't even show up to Sundance until buying, um, it's called Birth of a Nation. Uh, you know, that, that, like they didn't even buy movies from film festivals until like 2012, 2013, 2014, maybe even later. Maybe, you know, it was a really fast change. And how cool is it that we now even have these options available to us as consumers. I'm, I'm laying that to the side of being a, being a filmmaker. Like as a consumer, it's just like, oh, hey, we have a pandemic, we have to be home all the time. Luckily, we can just stream video nonstop, like mm-hmm. completely nonstop. Eight years ago, it was impossible and we would have been playing Scrabble all day. <laughs> right. Yeah, if, if like, imagine, imagine if you were in like high school or something and you're like, I've just discovered I have an interest in film or whatever. And, and you're like, and you're like, I've heard I should see like the thing and Halloween and Jaws. Imagine like just sitting at streaming all like there'd be some, and I only bring that up because I love streaming too, but let's be honest. We all run out of content. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, but imagine if you had, imagine if you were to start at square one, you're like, I'm going to watch the thing for the first time. And then you go yeah. from there. Like, oh my God. And you know what it is though? For me, I feel that way right now about and, I, and i'm gonna sound like a total douchebag um I, I feel that way about the criterion channel i can just i, I just open the criterion channel i was like oh my gosh i'm at the tip of the iceberg this is great and i can just click anything and then i and it, by the end of it i feel smarter and i and i appreciate cinema a little bit more you know mm-hmm. um so there is that it's just like oh it's foreign films and older films that like just don't have modern distribution right uh, like we are at the tip of the iceberg um, that feels really cool. <laughs> That's what I tell people. But like, I'm also into streaming too. But I'm also a big proponent of still physical copies. So I have like all these films in my collection. And whenever I tell people about them, they're like, "Oh, where is it streaming?" But for me, I'm just like, "Oh, I have the Criterion Blu-ray. Like that's where okay. I watched it." Out of curiosity, I, can I ask? Can I ask why? Because I, I really love, by the way, I love physical media. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious what your perspective is. Is it because you love? the ownership or do you like the behind the scenes kind of stuff or like what what is it i think for me i like the physical copy one like the artwork and everything they put into like especially criterion and scream factory i love the artwork they do for that the behind the scenes are great it's for me a lot of the times i've had really bad wi-fi and internet so when i'm streaming it'll become pixelated or if i just pop in the blu-ray it's just crystal clear perfect sound Let's all talk about the wildest move in the world is HBO hasn't changed their logo from starting with a whole bunch of static, mm-hmm. which for everybody that's listening to this is a garbled mess. Mm-hmm. There's no compressor in the world that can serve internet video, the first frame of internet video, which is always the HBO logo, and it's not a garbled mess. 
And, like how wild is it? They're stuck with it. It's crazy. I was um, even, I was telling my girlfriend about that because we were watching, we just watched Euphoria and I was like, I always loved hearing the HBO intro because it took yeah. me back to watching like, um, like Deadwood when I was watching it on uh, HBO Go before they changed it. Mm-hmm. Is Deadwood worth watching? I haven't seen it. I'm sorry. I never finished Deadwood, honestly. I think I like got through maybe season two and then I forgot where I was and I didn't feel like rewatching seasons one through two. Hmm. But I probably should. It looks awesome. I've I've heard I'm and my my parents used to be obsessed with that show. What I know about it is is that when you first see it, you're like, why are they speaking in Shakespearean speak? And it turns out it's like, well, that is actually accurate to the way people spoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Ian McShane character. Uh because he's like awesome in it. And he's mm-hmm. he's like the most like and was he in Carnival as I well? I think it's all of it. Yeah, he was yeah, he was, yeah, I think so. And then the other thing is is uh is that it's Look, I'm not going to say it's the last cool role that Timothy Oliphant did, but I would say the role is a lot cooler than what was the Santa Clarita Diet. What was, what was like that? Was like I, like you always after you see Timothy Oliphant and go, you're like this guy's going to do the coolest shit ever. And you mm-hmm. see like the scenes I've seen him in Deadwood, it's like oh, this is like mm-hmm. this is what you would have expected from that. And also, by the way, I like Justified. Mm-hmm. I think Timothy Oliphant. Or I think also. I think uh, Walton Goggins is. Walton Goggins is great. I first saw uh, him in House of a Thousand Corpses way back when. Walton Wait, Goggins, Goggins is House of a Thousand Corpses. He's he's the um the second deputy that's with um who's the other guy's name the other the other cop that goes to investigate the house. He has the he has the long um death scene that when Bill Mosley shoots him and they just like pant like do the crane shot up. Justin has the the best uh, at any like every like roughly Wednesday or so he'll just be like check it out and I follow Walton Goggins on Instagram too but like like Justin will always make make sure uh, appropriately that I've seen Walton Goggins new like cocktail that he's made in his backyard <laughs> you know he's doing quarantine very well he's I, I absolutely love it I was like uh, so I was so glad to see him blow up after like the Tarantino rules. Was that what it was? I have no idea. I feel what like it was. It's always been rad to me. So I think well, the way I heard it was that Tarantino, I think Tarantino like saw him on Justified. Mm-hmm. And saw it. So it was like, oh, this guy's awesome. And yeah. Captain cast him in a in um Hateful Eight? Was that what was that a Hateful Eight? He was in um he was in Django for a little bit. Right. Django. And he's in Django yeah. for a Django. Um uh have you ever seen actually Aaron's you know I've, We've talked about this so much. Have you ever seen um, a short film called The Accountant? Uh, won an Oscar. A short film won an Oscar, uh, directed by uh, not Ray Ray, Ray McKinnon. Yeah, oh, directed, directed by Ray McKinnon. Okay. Um, uh, and it's and it stars Ray McKinnon and Walton Goggins, a very young Walton Goggins. This is pre uh, the, the Shield Walton Goggins, which I'm pretty sure the Shield is where he became the Walton Goggins we know today. Probably. I think, like, uh, I just remember, like, I think I saw him Django and Hateful Eight, and then it seemed like after Hateful Eight, he, like, was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I have not seen The the Accountant. It's it, it's on YouTube, I think, or something. Yeah, you just, like, Google it, it. I think mm-hmm. if you Google Ray McKinnon, The Accountant, it is worth your... It's a long short film. It's about 30 minutes. Okay. But it, it's just... It is funny and brilliant and... Uh, Worth checking out. Have you ever seen the 
uh, on on the Ray McKinnon conversation. Have you ever seen uh, Rectify the show? Because I um, hope you're going to say no. Because I have not seen it. It's my favorite thing to let people know about. Yeah. Um, and uh, it it is a sh- it is a very special show. It is it is one of the best shows I've ever seen. It is pure character, uh, pure character, like just a character show. And what it is is about somebody who um, spent all of his adult life in prison, um, falsely accused of a crime. I'm sorry, I guess falsely accused of a crime and then released uh, from that from, and, and released. And that's, that's the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. You never really know what's going on in his head and you don't even completely know whether or not he's innocent. But he's, he's and, he, and it's, but it's just him getting released back out into life after 20 years in prison. Mm-hmm. for something he is accused of having been having done when he's a kid and the town that he's in doesn't know if he's innocent or guilty and they have very mixed feelings about it and that's okay. the entire show i don't there's no goal to the show which is really cool like most shows are very like like engine driven right mm-hmm. where it's like lost escape the island mm-hmm. you know, breaking bad uh, make enough money before i die to, to you know for my family's all of my favorite shows, mm-hmm. but rectify is just exploring what happens when you release that person back out into a small town. And you don't know if he's innocent or guilty and mm-hmm. it's perfect. It is truly a perfect show. So I'll, yeah. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. One, and it has, it only has a few writers on it. And one of the writers is Scott teams who, um, who's writing the new Halloween movies oh, yeah. and, yeah. and, uh, and lots of other stuff like that. He was a brilliant guy. And, uh, the show itself is fascinating because again, once you see the show we're talking about it, it, you can see so much of Ray McKinnon and Scott teams in it. And they're both so brilliant. I'll, be, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Cause I do like like obviously shows that have that central plot, like breaking bad, but I also love shows about nothing. Like it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. Like, that oh. shows literally nothing, but Absolutely. you know, who's a huge horror fan is Glenn Howerton from it's always sunny. Right. Like, loves horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, but you know what kind of falls in that category, though it doesn't start that way, is um, the leftovers in some ways. Because obviously, yeah. obviously, the leftovers. What it's about is like something to the, the equivalent to the rapture happened. What happened? That's the mystery. Mm-hmm. But I mean, most of the episodes of season two and three just follow a random character around in that world, but it mm-hmm. doesn't really give you much information about the premise of the pilot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's why it's awesome. It's that really- is why it's like beautiful. And a, a lamer show would be like, would be that everybody somehow becomes sure that the rapture is about to happen. So what happens in the countdown to that? You know, mm-hmm. but the leftovers just has that happen before the beginning of the first frame, and you just deal with it. Mm-hmm. And it's just dealing with this event that happened. Um, and 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 a show about grief is uh, not an easy sell, <laughs> frankly. You know, a, a show about an, an emotion that isn't inherently positive is uh, is a hard sell and i think that's brilliant they did that Le- the leftovers is our favorite thing in the world by the way that's why i'm agreeing. yeah i watched that with ian because i remember watching the first season on tv and then i think i was in high school at the time so i got really busy with high school stuff and projects um but then we watched it um and i remember the first season being great because of that premise and then yeah at, after season two they kind of just stopped focusing on the rapture itself and just people living their lives and i think what ian and i were talking about was with like Damon Lindelof and Lost is ABC was wanting him to make more seasons, even though Lindelof had a set plan. So with HBO, with The Leftovers, he's like, this is it. This is all I'm doing. And I'm not going to answer anything. It's up to you guys. I, I think he's, he's, in a, he's, 
So Damon Lindelof is, um, you know, probably our, 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 our best contemporary sci-fi uh, creator, I believe. Um, considering that he also did the exact same thing with Watchmen. I mean, Watchmen is like, like we'll be, we'll be looking at the Watchmen year smell. Like we probably bigger than the what? I mean, again, just his one season, mm-hmm. but like, like maybe even it's like a bigger deal than the Wire. Oh, I think so. As a as an think- example of perfect television, where it's mm-hmm. just beautiful. Yeah, and on top of that is the idea that he took beloved, untouchable source material, untouchable, did something completely different <laughs> yes, with yeah. it, and, and it made like, something that's and it's hard. I, it's ah, it's I mean, hard to say it out loud, but like it's just as good. It like really the, is the boldness know? of doing that to be like I'm going to do the Watchmen TV, and especially being him, like he knows what that means. The Watchmen mm-hmm. is essentially a holy text. Mm-hmm. Anything Alan Moore is a holy text almost, but the Watchmen is the yeah, like, like how do golden you, child. I, yeah, and how do you just be like, I'm going to do the sequel? It's like you're crazy, you're out of your mind, and then you do it, and you're like, this is one of the best things ever created in motion pictures. And, and it's also like, and it's not even just like self serious or anything. It's like hilarious and ridiculous, and it, and it knows it, and it mm-hmm. with that idea. And uh, I remember, uh, I uh, Justin and I joined an Alan Moore book club, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and um, where we just reread it and then get together and discuss it. Mm-hmm. Um, with actually this wonderful filmmaker named Ryan Krauss who made Low Life, if you've ever seen that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and it was really interesting because somebody that was also there knew, uh, or it had also, um, they, they knew some like spoilers for the new Watchmen, but which, which was still almost a year and a half out, I think. And, um, and they were just saying like, yeah, we have just no idea anything about it. We just know squid rains from the sky and police wear like yellow face masks. Mm-hmm. I was like, that was it. And I was thinking, that sounds amazing. <laughs> and I don't know what that means because I like to give almost everything the benefit of the doubt, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, and I don't view, you know, the original source material of Watchmen as, as untouchable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, but it's it's wonderful, so. Doesn't like Alan Moore... I think I, I don't remember if I read somewhere when the Watchmen series came out that he wasn't a fan of it, but uh, isn't he also like in the woods somewhere? Like, isn't that what he just does now? <laughs> he hasn't. Well, here's as far as like, we, 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 we literally <laughs> listen to podcasts of him talking random podcasts on the way to work with him. We just listen yeah, to we, his voice. we know a lot about him. Um, so he, he basically, he hasn't watched anything since the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, that terrible movie from like right. 15 years ago. It's, very, it's from a long time ago. Like he hasn't even seen, as far as he's communicated to the press, he's never even seen like your V for Vendetta mm-hmm. or Sniper's Watchmen or any of that stuff. And uh, and he, I think there was two things happening. One was that um, the business beside, behind the comic books of those, those books that became extremely... Um, uh, well, famous in pop culture, but I mean, like Time Magazine, they named Watchmen one of like the 100 greatest novels of the 20th century or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. Like as they, they built these legacies, the business behind them became, um, I guess, really, really frustrated with in, all, in a lot of ways and lost a lot of friendships and people they worked with on those things. Mm-hmm. And then and then you saw those movies coming out, those early things like League of Story Gentlemen, and he's just like, this is a disaster. And he just, he just like, never, he, I think he just decided to never look at those things again. And he lives in a, a town in England called Northampton and doesn't leave a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, he had his own comic book company doing lots of stuff for a long time. He's, he's a novelist. He's doing films now too, I think, but he, uh, 
I just love that, like, you know, uh, like a few levels removed, just like, yeah, he just lives in the woods now. <laughs> you see him, that's what you imagine. No, that's exactly, well, what's, can I, I'm going to tell yeah. the story. Okay, so he uh, he had this wonderful podcast, uh, I don't remember exactly, what it, it, we, we listened to so many of them, but he went to this festival in relatively rural England, um, and, uh, and it was a, and, and it was a festival, uh, I think it was a music or sci-fi festival or something like that. It doesn't matter. Imagine rural England and everybody's rolling. That's the whole idea. Like that's important. The audience is rolling. And, um, and he gets up to do his bit of whatever he's being asked to talk about. I cannot remember. I'm going to paraphrase this and butcher it all, but the, the point will remain right where he gets up and he starts talking about simulation theory. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, you know, we all know from the matrix that, and I wish I could imitate his beautiful voice. He's got the deepest, most wonderful act, like British accent, you know, but he goes, we all know from the matrix, this idea of simulation theory that we're all just like brains that are in a vat somewhere plugged into a, a digital simulation. But if it were like that, it would probably be, you know, very video game like, um, as we all know, where everyone's the hero of their own story and all that. And if you were, um, you know, essentially the person running the game, You'd want to, you know, you are God, right? You're God. Uh, however, you wouldn't want to go and be president because that sounds really boring. That, that's a lot of pressure. That's not fun, you know, but you also don't want to be the poorest person in the world. You want, you don't, you want to be right in the middle. You want to be established. People respect you, you, um, but not, uh, um, but, but not as much responsibility. Um, and then of course you'd probably want to kind of model yourself after, uh, God so that people like kind of respect you in a way. And what's the way that people view God, like kind of like long hair and a giant beard, you know, and, you know, but you'd want to be kind of prominent, like a, like a novelist, like a writer. And you probably want to give yourself like a good deep voice and a, and a British accent so that you sound intelligent to everyone you meet. And of course he's describing himself. And, uh, and he's, and he's saying this in the middle of the woods to a whole bunch of people that are on psychedelics. And he's, and he's doing this and slowly watching the audience get convinced that God in the simulation has just revealed himself to them. <laughs> and it makes me love him so much more. That is like one of the best stories. <laughs> like that perfectly describes Alan Moore. He does this all the time. That's why we love him. It's he, like the whole of existence is his plaything. Mm-hmm. That sounds like um, I, I was reading a lot in the beginning of the quarantine about Jared Leto's like cult thingy that he was going on. <laughs> and what are we talking about? <laughs> Jared Leto? <laughs> the cult thing. He like was in the desert for weeks. And then when he came back, he found out COVID happened. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's what I imagine. He like looked up Alan Moore's thing and was like, I'm going to do that. Like, I look like Alan Moore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I actually. I'm now terrified of the idea of like they're making a movie about Alan Moore's life and Jared Leto's like I'm gonna go live with Alan Moore for three years. <laughs> like study he's him. gonna become Alan, like Moore. Alan Moore. No matter who it is, he's gonna be like, get out of my goddamn house. <laughs> <laughs> There's like Alan Moore is like one of those figures, and it's like Bill Murray too, where it's like you hear all these stories and it just adds to their their legend. Yeah. To the point yeah. that they're like not even a person anymore, where you're just like, hmm. My, uh, my, uh, my girlfriend over the break was, was staying here. We were talking about like how he, he's just sort of seems to reject the legacy of these books, things like Watchmen and Be for the Dead are from Hell, 
that it seems like one would make a lot of money off of them. So she's just like, wait, how does, does, does he make money? How does he make money? And she Googles, how does Alan Moore make money? And it goes to a Reddit thread. And on the Reddit thread, there's, there's like seven, not just one, there's like three people on this Reddit thread going like, well, actually he lives in my hometown. And uh, it seems every time he gets a check for um, uh, Watchmen or V for Vendetta, he like hands it out to people on his walk to the grocery store. <laughs> And it was just like, of course, that's the that story. And it wasn't one person. It was like several people. And that was it's just uh, something along those lines where it's like, what in the world? You... Yeah. <laughs> I, guess, I guess he's still able to, to make it happen with residuals. I'll also say, though, uh, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've found the uh, network.com uh, page that uh, has my name on it. And uh, let me just say that this is all just a pack of lies. So how people make money cannot be solved by the internet. <laughs> it's like only that person knows how they make money. It's like all these random people on Reddit yeah. being like, this is how they do it. Yeah. Although how weird would it be if somebody that looked like uh, God just handed you $500 on his way to the grocery store? I would be like, I don't know what, I don't know what the trick is, but I'm not going to accept somehow i'm being scammed and i don't know what it is right <laughs> that'd be like one of the strange like even if you had like headphones and just walking and yeah. like someone like alan moore walked up to you give me, give me some money yeah okay i'll take it <laughs> but i'll be hesitant at first mm-hmm. um i figured this part of the show since this is all about promoting your guys's film synchronic we can finally get to promoting synchronic sure um so synchronic comes out on digital on um, the 12th and then Blu-ray and DVD on the 26th, correct? I believe you are correct, yeah. Okay, so we won't give too much away about the film or like pretty much anything about the film. I kind of wanted to talk to you guys more about your process with the filmmaking and just how like the idea came about with Synchronic um, versus your other previous films. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first question I had written down was what was like your writing process like for Synchronic versus like resolution or spring or the endless? Um, I mean, it was, if there was something that made it different from those movies, it was just, it was longer by virtue of the fact at the time it was first written in 2015, we couldn't get it made. And then it could get made several years uh, later. So because of that, you end up going through more drafts of things, but then it also had, it had opportunities to get made through other avenues that would require taking uh, notes from other sources that were outside of the bubble we would normally do it. So it was just, it was weird. It, I guess a, a short way of answering that is it had more development than other scripts we've had mm-hmm. uh, at, the, at the writing process. Uh, because usually, because basically as Resolution, Spring, The Endless, and the movie we just did, those were mostly like, that was just Aaron and I, and then we'd send it to 10 people per draft or something. Like, what do you think? Take all those notes, mm-hmm. uh, do a new draft. It was like that, but this wasn't, and it would take place over several months instead of several years. Mm-hmm. The thing that we just shot, nobody read. We don't know how that's going to turn out, but like <laughs> nobody read it. It was just us. So that, that's really interesting. Your new film, no one read it, right? Yeah. So it's like, um, what is that? The old story of, Liam Neeson with Phantom Menace, how he got sent the script, or he accepted it without even reading a word of the script. 
sort of thing. Yeah, funny. It's, it's very similar to the Phantom Menace. It's a Menace. lot like the Phantom Menace. This is our homage to uh, homage to the, the Phantom Menace Part Two. By the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go on. I'm sure that a lot. This is a very fine line of armchair opinion, but like, look, we we we've we've spent a very long time as a society bagging on the prequels, and and for good reason in many ways. But they are way more imaginative in retrospect. And I know that everyone says that. And I'm sorry. I just want to add my voice to that chorus. Like it, now that you look back on it, you're like, okay, there's a crazy amount of imagination at work here. And I would cool. definitely agree. I actually, at the end of last year, had a whole three-hour episode with my friend Arsenio where we dive into like Mandalorian, Clone Wars, Rebels, prequel, sequels. Like We dive into everything Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would agree because, like, with the prequels, you get Clone Wars and all this like world expansion, um, yeah. versus and like the originals and the sequels, where it's like kind of narrowed. It's it's also weirdly ballsy. I know we're talking about some product, but it is also just ballsy to be like, yeah, we're gonna bring in like taxation and you know, <laughs> like as like I didn't understand what taxes even functionally were besides like, oh, this thing that annoys adults, you know. But before I was like fifteen, and like. And they just brought it in and they brought in like senates and votes and all of that. And like that, that just even the idea of it is, is interesting. It truly is. And the same way that like learning about the science behind your science fiction, like we were talking about earlier is actually interesting, mm-hmm. but it's, but like you have, you have to make a stand to do it and it doesn't always work out, but it's, but it's like, okay, that's, that's a cool idea. It's not, it's, there's something deeper here. There's a, there's an interconnected network of systems that we're examining. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that means that therefore the movies are like like fully redeemed and all of that, but like it was really going for it, and mm-hmm. we need to like we need to applaud uh, originality in massive franchises. Mm-hmm. I would definitely agree. That's that is something I thought was very interesting versus like originals and the prequels is like the politics behind everything. Um, and we were mentioning in that episode about Clone Wars how a lot of things that happen in that show add more depth to the prequels when you look at it from the whole piece. Mm, that's cool. I've never seen Clone Wars, but that, that's, a, that's a cool idea that they can keep on supplementing it and giving it all. Yeah. I would recommend it because while they, I don't think they were intentionally trying to since the films came out way before, um, the show, when you put it in the context of where it takes place in the timeline, adds so much to like what the characters do in the movies between two and three. Cool. So I would recommend it. Cool. Um, you were saying when you wrote Synchronic at the time, it couldn't be done. I wanted to know, was it because of like technology or like the idea? Of- <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish it was technology. No, it was it was just because um it was like the movie we had out had out most recently was a movie called Spring. And that that movie is like, oh, you know, for an independent film at that budget range, it did well. Uh, um, critically and even financially in, you know, the way those small movies work financially. Mm. Like, by no means was it a failure in any way, but it wasn't, it didn't do well enough to to get us the attention of the types of financiers that we would need to make a movie that was even at the budget of Synchronic, which, by the way, is still a very small budget. Mm. Um, We just couldn't, we just couldn't, couldn't do it. And it took making one more movie to get to that point. So we, we went and made the endless for much less money and mm-hmm. uh, a movie that was tailor made for a much smaller budget. And 
off of that, it seemed like we were able to to uh, find the sort of avenues to get uh, Synchronic made. Um, but yeah, it was written at the end of 2015. Um, and yeah, and by virtue of the business, it was like, oh, it was just, it was in development much longer than, than our other scripts. Other scripts like went out relative, like relatively fast from, from first draft into production. Mm -hmm. That's what I noticed. Like, even though your films have a low budget compared to a lot of like mainstream and other films, they have a lot of unique techniques and a lot of very good effects in them. Like I was blown away by a lot of what you guys did in Synchronic um, as far as how you, a person can go from one place to another within, within the scene. Um, I thought it was very impressive um, for what you guys were working with. Yeah, one, one of the ways we were able to do that is, um, so we worked with uh, this this uh, French Canadian company called Boof that's responsible for like Blade Runner 2049 and Into the Void and American Gods and a lot of like really cool, really inventive mind bendy kind of effects. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we love them, uh, love their work. And, uh, and so we were able to give them all of the particularly difficult stuff. And so we did, we were able to like kind of carve out that, bit in the budget to, to do that but there's a lot more than that and so um you know frankly we did that or we did the other half ourselves but that was like the the relatively simple easy stuff but stuff that would otherwise be expensive mm -hmm. things like you know adding stars to the sky painting out things painting it back in and actually i just realized that there were there were a lot that were more complicated than that but i guess what i should say is like the creative effects for the most part we're able to give to them and then the the kind of like process effects of just like oh just just got to get it done in this way mm -hmm. um we were able to do ourselves literally ourselves mm -hmm. um which is totally free so we kind of got like you know half the vfx budget or the, the vfx budget could be half of what it otherwise would have been you know um but i don't want to take away any of their creative work i i mean that because right books creative work is what we brought them on and a lot of the work in it is great, especially um, I was just thinking right now of The Endless, how a lot of the shots and motions in that film, you guys put like these little light rings around the characters. Mm -hmm. um, it's, so it's like little details you guys put in your films that, I mean, might not necessarily be known on a first watch, um, but it's those like little details that add to the whole experience, mm -hmm. especially with your guys' films, which are so layered that multiple viewings might be necessary. Um, especially when you show other people, even I believe Ian was picking up on things and he had already seen the film multiple times by the time he showed me. Yeah. Yeah. The hope is like, you, you just kind of, you know, realize that you have no money and if you have no money, what, what kind of things are free? It's like, Oh, interesting characters, uh, you know, good dialogue, mm -hmm. uh, and, and ideas, ideas, mm -hmm. um, you know, visuals are really good for cutting a character, cutting a trailer, you know, mm -hmm. so you have to have something there. Uh, and I shouldn't say that. I mean, obviously, that's the whole process of being a filmmaker is creating these visuals. But um, but you can have a movie that actually like sits with people uh, that doesn't just require huge amounts of money to throw at a single shot or two. You know, that yeah, that's like the argument could be made or like the debate where I am on the side of less is more. Where a lot of more interesting films I find have less budgets versus a film that can get thrown three hundred million dollars at it. Right. I mean, just. I mean, the, the ultimate example of that in the world is coherence, right? Mm -hmm. Like, 
just watch coherence and it's like that'll blow people's minds mm-hmm. with the performances and and uh and a really interesting idea and that movie looks like it was made for four toothpicks mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know and another another weird thing that can add a lot of value going really small is we we did a really small movie recently um and two things one was the pandemic was going on and that, and because of that we had to make it so small that um uh, that it would be safe to do it. And our producer is a health safety officer and all these things. We figure out a way to do it safely. But this weird thing happens where it's like, if you're that small, you can go into these locations that you would never be able to do on a $5 million movie. Yeah. I mean, not never, but like we would be able to shoot. There's a lot of locations in LA in this movie where it's like, oh, we probably wouldn't get that location if we were working with only a couple million or something. Here's mm-hmm. a way to say it. Um, Synchronic would have scenes that take place in the French Quarter and Bourbon Street, if if it were a ten thousand dollar movie, mm-hmm. but because it was more than that, we could not. Mm-hmm. You know? like like because it was because it was slightly larger than nothing, uh, we couldn't steal locations like that. Uh, but for sure, we would have had a camera on someone's shoulder with Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan talking to each other on Bourbon Street. If that were if it were a smaller movie, we would have. Mm-hmm. And it was very. If it's during a pandemic, you can also end up in situations where there's just n- like it's almost like you have like sets from 28 days later available to you. There's no one out. <laughs> right. You got these like giant huge, there's no one about and no one wants like yeah. The place well, we got kicked out of was the least expected to get kicked out of. Like we there's iconic places we're shooting at because it's just the two of us and our producer Dave mm-hmm. in a camera. We're just shooting at iconic places and nobody says a word, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, yeah, it's bizarre. That's what I was going to ask. So did most of the film in Synchronic, you guys shot in New Orleans or did was it like... It was all New Orleans, yeah. All in New Orleans? Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, was it like budget reasons you shot there or was there a certain reason you decided to set Synchronic in New Orleans? Oh, well, we, it was definitely set there for the story in terms of like, and there's so many reasons, but some of them are just like, well, if it's about a designer synthetic analog drug that is sold in a head shop, that is mostly an American phenomenon. There's some of those in the UK and not really sure about other places, but so there's that. And if you're going to choose a city in the United States that you're going to be like peeling back the layers of history, there's not like that many. I mean, even if you go to LA and you pull back the layers of history, Anthony just would have ended up in a dirt lot in the desert, like over yep. and over again. So, so like when you're New Orleans has all those interesting layers going back for for many many centuries. So mm-hmm. um, it was always it was always written for New Orleans. It would have been really hard to change it to another city. Um, we consider uh, you know Spring is obviously written for a small Italian town. Mm-hmm. We thought about changing that to like Columbia at one point. Uh, Jakarta, Jakarta. Somebody also somewhere in the United States. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. Uh, oh, Montenegro. Montenegro. Yeah. Montenegro would have been as Italy. Anyways, these scripts are always written for that. Luckily, we've been able. All these scripts have been written for those places, and luckily, we've always been able to to actually shoot in those places because it'd be like basically writing a new script. Mm-hmm. I loved the having it in New Orleans because I believe the only other movies I could think of that took place in New Orleans were like Jim Jarmusch films <laughs> like, um, like down by law, or I believe um, stranger than paradise was in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. I believe. 
I haven't seen Strangers in Paradise. Is it Angel Heart in New Orleans? No, it's not him, but uh, I'm not 100% sure. I can double check that. I think an, another, I'm trying to be another one that's, oh, Interview with the Vampire. There you go. That, that one as well. That's a good New Orleans movie. Uh, gosh, but they're, yeah, not a lot like jumps out, does it? Yeah, um, Angel Heart takes place in New Orleans. Just looked it up. But yeah, for some reason, when the whole time I was watching Synchronic, I was just thinking Down by Law and expecting Tom Waits to show up at some That's point. That's so cool. I wish Tom Waits would have showed up in our movie. That's so cool. <laughs> Tom Waits needs to show up in everything, honestly. He does need to show up in everything. Have you ever seen Wrist Cutters where he shows up as God? No, but that sounds amazing. There's an amazing movie called Wrist Cutters that stars Patrick Fugit from Almost Famous. And um, Tom Waits plays God in it. And he's been, he needs to play God in every movie. That's why I loved, um, yeah. what was it, 2018? He was in Buster Scruggs and then he showed up in Dead Don't Die. He was amazing in Buster Scruggs. He, that was... he had the best segment in the whole movie. It was so good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's ever been anything Tom Waits has been involved with that isn't awesome. I know. He, just put his name on anything, and it's probably going to be amazing. I was watching, um, what was it? I think Rumblefish as well, because he's in it for very little. Um, let me see the other questions I got. I didn't really have a whole lot for the film, because um, I, again, I don't know how much we can talk about it without spoiling it, or like how much you guys can delve into it. However you want, man. We're, we're here for you. Well, I just don't know if, like, um, I don't know if there's, like, contracts involved. Is the whole thing? No. There's no contract about spoiling it. It's, it's just the question is, is, are the people listening to this, is it before or after they've seen Synchronic? We just don't know. So, That's true. I was yeah. planning on releasing this, so when they're listening to it now, it'll be on the 15th. Um, let's, let's assume before, then. So we'll do. Yeah. All right. So we'll assume that they haven't seen it. And that's like, that's been the problem because uh, you guys sent me the screener for it. So I've been able to see it. So when people ask me about it, because they're asking me where to watch it. And I'm right. like, oh, it comes out. I think it comes out digital around this time before I saw the release date. That's so um, yeah, it'll be digital on the 12th and I think Blu-ray on the 26th, something like that. I'm looking forward to picking up that Blu-ray. To add it to the the uh, I have all your other films on Blu-ray as well. Okay. Oh, that's cool. Because I remember what sold me on Spring was just seeing Linklater and Guillermo's names on the box on the box cover. <laughs> yeah, that, that was that was good on that. Right? Yeah. Was, <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. That that was yeah. Yeah, what was it like when you guys first saw like for Spring? Guillermo was raving about it. Well, it, okay. to put, I mean, to put it sort of in context, I mean, the movie had been out for a long time. Uh, it was well after the release. And when the movie's getting released, you're really, um, you're hoping and everyone else around you is hoping that, that you'll have something like that happen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you're tempted to like, just like send a message to every um well-known filmmaker you know like watch my movie and tell me what you think uh but the um but the fact that he did that like so long after the release it was wild because you just like wake up one morning having no idea and you should have all these all these notifications on your phone and um 
and it, it's weird because it, it becomes the legacy of the movie in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think great, it's like I think it's the quote on the front is Guillermo's. I, the the quote on the front, uh, not to, I, I, they could have uh, genuinely they could have modified this in years since, but the quote on the front was from Richard Linklater because he did give a quote for the release of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas whereas uh, Guillermo, was, yeah, Guillermo was way later, which is actually kind of interesting because you know as a as an independent filmmaker, you get a theatrical release of your movie, and that when that happens, you you just can't believe it, and you're like, my movie's out, and you start hearing some people talking about it. But then you realize, like, not that many people go to see indie movies in indie theaters and the mm-hmm. 50 or whatever theaters you released it in. And so when it's on digital, that's when anybody in the world can access it. And that's when it, like, really comes out, you know, and that's when people really start talking about it. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, that fades away. And then one day you just wake up. Nobody tells you when this is going to happen. And your movie just hits Netflix. Nobody mm-hmm. tells you, hey, Netflix, is, it's going to happen. And that's when everything really explodes. And it's like your movie's actually finally been released. And people just talk about, and I say Netflix, sorry, meaning Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, which, whichever, you know. And that's when it's like, when it's just ex- available for free to just anybody wandering around, that's mm-hmm. when it really gets released. But that's still not the truth. The truth is your movie gets released when Guillermo del Toro tweets about it. <laughs> and that's when, when people actually discover that your movie exists. When Guillermo says so. Yeah. Yeah, that was like like the movie actually got released for the first time. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Spring is like a very because it's a difference between at least from when I saw it was Resolution and the Endless, which take place in the same universe. Um, and, uh, yes. and then yeah. Spring is just this like other other monster of a movie, like with the monster in the film. Yeah, which has to be one of the coolest on screen monsters designed. It's so unique. I- Thank you for saying that. That's cool. Yeah, that was the goal. Yeah. That's good to hear. Um, even after doing that and being like, oh, we designed a monster using lots of practical effects and all that stuff. Um, when stuff like that gets brought up now about being like doing like monster creature stuff, we're just like, you have no idea. How it's. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a funny thing where it's like, it's impossible. Like, mm-hmm. unless we have so much money. Like, and by the way, we feel like it turned out very well. Nothing we would change. It's just funny where it's like, even after doing it, it's like when you hear about people wanting to do like a creature feature or like the idea of doing it, you're like, this is a gigantic undertaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no idea. Yeah. It's so hard to do. I mean, there's, there's only one monster recently I can think of that's like, oh, that's a unique and really well done monster. At, like, period. Like, mm-hmm. the only one. And it's like, oh, from um, The Ritual. Uh, and oh, yeah, the- yeah. And, and, and it's interesting how they tied like the, the design of the monster into like the mystery of the film and all of that. I was like, why are they just being impaled really high up on trees? Mm-hmm. I couldn't even like figure that out until you see the monster. And all mm-hmm. sense. Um, and everything else is like, oh yeah, it's like a cool dude in a suit. Like cool <laughs> dude, cool suit. Plus a dude in a suit. And then, and then the last really cool ones are like 30 years ago. The thing. When it'd be like, yeah, we're going to have a, the thing. A unit, a second unit for for a month working on it. That's what I always think of whenever I see creature features is like not comparing it to the thing, but it's like nothing can really live up to the thing's effects. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still true. And it, and it's not just uh, nostalgia for the past. You can watch it nowadays. And, it's like, and it still yep, looks great. Still looks impossible. Yeah. And by the way, there's still like great, great creature effects sprinkled throughout history, you know, like all of them, but it's, but like nowadays it becomes, I shouldn't say nowadays, it is 
always hard and increasingly more so to create a unique, memorable, original monster. Mm -hmm. I actually think um, we, we produced the film uh, and, and we can't take any of the credit away from uh, Masters Effects and, um, and Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella who created the film. Uh, I think the, the monster that they made is pretty damn sweet, even though it's definitely a dude in a rubber suit. Mm -hmm. you know, it's still like a really cool Florida monster, you know. The, the actually the other one that no one talks about that's kind of interesting, and there's me a lot of people listening right now who are gonna very much disagree with me, but I'm gonna say it is I actually think there's some really good creature effects in um, Prometheus and Alien Covenant. I agree. Um, I agree. I, to be honest, a lot of it looks like a looks like, looks like a video game in a bad way. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like it, but a lot of it is really underrated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I and is like actually pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. um, well, the I xenomorph like what, alone. Uh, I like what they tried in. Um, oh man, they tried to rebrand it. It's called Live Die Repeat now. It used to be. Called oh, Edge of Tomorrow. I, I I think they gave a really cool shot. Oh, you know what? Sorry, my favorite creature design uh, uh, of the modern era that is full blown CGI, and everyone's going to crucify me for saying it. Annihilation. I think I think that is great creature design. I would it agree. Only that one, CGI and it's done very well. Love that was it. that probably is the last like great creature that's been in recent movies. Yeah. I would I would definitely agree. That was one of the most unique, cool looking monsters. And I even thought of the thing watching that. Yeah. Yeah, it has the same kind of dread for sure. And the other one that everyone's been kind of overlooked from recent times, but we're all thinking it is cats. <laughs> Best I creature feature. Everything you just <laughs> yes. Cats has the best creature designs. Of we have the most whole cat. Like every time you see cats, you get the full, like even more so than the thing, you get full blown existential dread. Lovecraftian <laughs> nightmares come out of cats. So when I went to go see cats, because I saw it for this podcast to review it when I was still like reviewing movies. My day was going to go see Star Wars, then Cats right after it, and then I was going to see Uncut Gems later that night. Oh, and man. Cats gave me such a headache that I had to cancel my tickets for Uncut Gems. Oh, my gosh. That would have been an even crazier headache. And I say that yep. as a compliment to Uncut Gems. So, wow. That's I feel like deep. my headache for Cats, yeah, it would have been a totally different headache for Uncut Gems. I genuinely did not know how to process seeing Cats. And I know we all like to try to find the most, like, the most uh, uh, the the biggest joke we can make about it, right? Like, what is what is like what is the most um, what, how big of a joke can we make? But it, it's all true. Everything that anyone ever says about cats is true. Mm -hmm. All of it. Like, even when they say it's like, oh, it's a secret masterpiece or it's a subversive piece of cinema. Even like these like hot takes, it's all true. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing with Joker. Like, everything ever said about it is true. Exactly. And, uh, and that's really that's an interesting one. Yeah. I feel like Cats could be one of the most debated movies because like there's people who will watch it as so bad it's good, and people who think it's bad, and people who think it's good. And like I don't know what spectrum it falls under. Yeah, and that, and it's and what's great about it is all of them are correct, and and I don't say that as a cop out. I say that as like what an interesting piece of cinema <laughs> that where where once in a while something comes along that you can't say anything incorrect about it. There's a miracle and a curse in every frame. <laughs> That's every a film frame. I wish I would be still in film school to study and analyze. Yeah. Is Cats. Yeah. I wish I, I wish I were in film school back. Yeah, I totally agree. 
there's like so many films like that where I was well also in film school there were so many films I wish we would have watched versus what we did watch because I feel yeah. like there was a lot of films I had to discover on my own versus the ones they showed us that's actually that's one thing that uh, that my film school I, I they they actually asked me one time they're like what would you improve and I'd say I just give everyone a subscription to Criterion Channel just to make <laughs> sure that everyone's watching more movies. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, because we, there was too much to do to be like, all right, this is movie watching class besides the fact that we did have one, but it was once a week, Mm -hmm. one a week, you know? Um, but I do think like watching movies as a, uh, as a form of, um, education, um, that's a double-edged sword as a sword as well, obviously, because you could just start imitating and Mm -hmm. just to analyze it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was kind of in my school, we had um, a world cinema class that I took and we got to the, the Japan section and literally they had Kurosawa on one PowerPoint slide and then moved on. Oh, boy. And wow. I was like, no, <laughs> like, yeah. that's what I wanted to learn. Yeah, yeah. And I, but there's too much. There's too there much. is too much. You know? I kind of get it. But I also totally understand where it's like, yeah, you, that could be that could be your entire film education. That could be the entire class is just him. Right. But that's, that's how you become, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. Um, that, that's like how you become better, right? Is you do target those things that you want and then you go and decide to mm-hmm. shape it down as your full education. Right? Mm-hmm. There's like, yeah, I would agree. And especially at film school, there's a lot. I feel like the thing I had not really an issue with is they kind of just made you do certain projects without really you being creative or like exploring genres. It was like, do an experimental film, do like, this piece and go but it wouldn't be like here's like a premise and do whatever genre you want i don't know that's I, that's how i got taught at my film school so i don't know how it is everywhere else that's inter- i mean that's that's that is interesting uh i remember i remember like it being oddly subversive in that like it, you know, they always say, like, you, you got to know the rules before you can break them, you know, mm-hmm. like, like no traditional three act structure before you try to write Pulp Fiction, basically. I felt like those things were like, hey, we're going to teach you on day one or like week one, the the textbook way of doing things and mm-hmm. then encourage you to do other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that was cool. I thought. <laughs> like, uh, and. I think I saw a quote from PT Anderson because he didn't go to he didn't go to school. He was like, "Just watch films and you'll be good to go." I can't completely agree with that. Yeah. I, I, I and, but I love the idea. And by the mm-hmm. way, I know that I just spent the time uh, talking about that. But the analysis of films is also really important because I do think that there's a lot of people who are fans of films that, that, that then just being a fan of films does not then translate into being a good filmmaker. Unfortunately, It can. Um, but for the most part is it's just another piece of your education. Uh, Mm -hmm. like, but, but fandom is not an inherent part of, of, uh, becoming a good filmmaker. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. Uh, it is just a piece it's a it's an important piece and and for some it was a for me in particular it was like a missing piece i was like i didn't i never dove deep enough and i feel like i need to dive deeper now Mm -hmm. you know but there's also 
a lot of people who just watch a bunch of films and then they're like, all right, so if I have a million dollars, like, what do I do with it? And it doesn't turn into a good movie. It becomes a mosh. Mm-hmm. I feel like with P.T. Anderson, it's kind of like a rare exception. Like him or like a Tarantino is like that one like rare exception where they didn't go to school. They just went and did it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're, and they're also totally diff- like such incredibly different beasts, right? It's like mm-hmm. Tarantino is unabashedly like just creating homage all the time. Yeah. And he does it so brilliantly that I can't even ima- imagine. I couldn't imagine what a Tarantino movie would be like if it weren't that. Uh, and then there's like David Fincher, who's like never made homage. And then he makes Mank, which is like a perfect pastiche of, you know, of an old movie, you know. And then P.T. Anderson, whose movies are about movies in some ways sometimes or about pop culture but they don't have an, an, an inch of homage in my opinion. So I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> we're all good. Um, I think we're running out of time for your guys is a lot of time slot. Um, so I think I would just wanted to wrap up real quick and I guess we kind of were just going over it, but I, I wanted to ask one last piece of advice because I am an, like an aspiring filmmaker and I'm sure some of my listeners are as well. Um, if you guys had any advice from, your personal lives if for any anybody wanting to make films or anybody who just is a huge fan of films but maybe doesn't know how to go about making films yeah well i mean a, a big thing is like if, uh, if you feel it's time and you're ready to go shoot short films or your first feature or whatever it is uh something that we've always done is just make lists of things that you have at your disposal um, whether it be locations or literally a prop that most people couldn't afford <laughs> that go along with your interests and the story you're trying to express because um, early, you, I mean, at least for us, we had to make several movies um, after making a lot of short films. We had to make several movies that we had to use those lists. Where I was like, what do we got? Mm-hmm. We got a cabin we can use. Yeah. <laughs> we got, we got uh, our buddy Vinny's really funny. Uh, you know, you tell, yeah. And you just like, kind of, you build the value of your movie, uh, that way. Like, Mm -hmm. so so instead of being like, Hey, I, I don't know if you're like, I really like space operas. It's like, it's really hard to get like a planet, Mm -hmm. you know, or, or a spaceship. Um, another thing I'd say is that there are actually no gurus. There's nobody that actually knows what's going on. And I know that that seems like an obvious piece of advice, but it's just so true. The more that we work, you, we recognize that the people that came up with us are often just as instinctually talented as the people that we've worked with that are like, that, have, that are just like legends. The, those people are there. There is nobody that actually knows what's going on. And you just have to really trust that your taste is what people are there to see mm-hmm. you know? um, and you will often find yourself in this weird situation where you are wrenchingly directing somebody who is like worked with the, the best of the best of the best mm-hmm. you know? and you just gotta like find your own voice in it mm-hmm. so what like there's no gurus you just gotta go make your own movie you just have to and that's mm-hmm. it you know and th- there's no like path there's no ladder to climb there's no like actual like way to go do it you just have to like go find it just go and do it yeah and and you like can't be scared by being like 
something that's like, oh, maybe I can't, you know, maybe, maybe I won't be able to do it because there'll be this environment, there'll be things I don't know about. Well, it turns out that every single project you go into, you will feel, it'll be a new environment where you will not know how it works. <laughs> like you'll start recognizing things and like figure it out. But every project is like, oh, from the tiniest one to the biggest ones, it's like, always you get there day one, you're like, uh, no, like, yeah. it's like okay to be like, I don't know that terminology. <laughs> like, 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 it's totally normal, like, completely normal. Like, from the smallest to the biggest, you just walk in and you just, there's no precedent. Mm -hmm. It is not a bank. Like, it is not a spreadsheet. It is making a movie and it's going to be different every single time. And that's totally normal and okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfect. I, I think that's actually the great, a great way to end it because I've heard, that advice a lot and i also agree with it a lot is just go out and do it yeah yeah absolutely and don't assume that that other people are doing it right and you're doing it wrong mm -hmm. yeah that's like what i i would believe too is like if you stick to your vision it's good and then also take suggestions from people like if you don't know it like don't be afraid to take suggestions mm -hmm. absolutely for sure for sure for sure well, thank you guys for stopping by the show. This was this was great. Um, figure we could end it with you guys promoting Synchronic, letting everybody know where it's at, letting everybody know where your other films and projects are at as well. Yeah, Aaron, when does Synchronic come out? It is January twelfth on digital. January, geez, I've forgotten already. Twenty fourth, twenty sixth on Blu-ray. Uh, I think that it's pre-orderable now, uh, right now. And uh, I think, is The Endless still on Netflix in America? Yes. Yes. Endless okay. is Netflix. Uh, Spring is, I found it, it's on Hulu. Oh, wow. Spring yeah. is on Hulu. It's also, is it still on Shutter? It's on Shutter. I think it might be on both. Was it on uh, Amazon? I think it was on Amazon at one point. Or Resolution, I, I think is on Amazon. It, it changes, like, like there's these rolling contracts that either do or don't get renewed, and then suddenly it pops up somewhere else. I just found out that Spring is on Hulu, and that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't know where resolution is to be honest. I know it's somewhere. I'm sorry. I, I know just it, don't know. I know where. it was on Shutter. Yes, I um, think it's on Amazon. I thought I saw it pop up at one point. Yeah. So this is a really messy site. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's somewhere. So I'm like, let me name all of them. I know it's not on HBO. <laughs> it's not on HBO. <laughs> Everyone should have both an Amazon and a Shutter subscription, anyways. So yeah, true. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Anyways, I'll find it and I'll link it in the description to figure out. So I'll do the work for everybody. Yes, please do. <laughs> I'll thank put you. it there for you. Thank you. Uh, but thank you guys for stopping by. This was great. Awesome. Um, check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Lighting Up the Marquee. Listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. And remember to go check out Synchronic Digital Jan or, yeah, January 12th and January 26th on Blu-ray. And once again, thank you guys for stopping by. Thank you. Uh, thank you, man. And until next time, I'm your host, Tim Martin. This has been Lighting Up the Marquee.